Welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal on the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Matt, and today on Streams of Progress, I am joined by Jad Halawi, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Washman. During the discussion, we covered Jod's reflections on entrepreneurship, how to find your role as a leader, the importance of community, and so much more. So join us as we dive into the discussion. I'm sitting here with Jod Halawi, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Washman. And uh, before we get into all the great things going on with Washman, uh, I want to hear a little bit more about your background. How did you get to where you are today? So I grew up in Saudi Arabia. Um, I went to the French school there. Towards the end of my stay in Saudi until 12th grade, um, a lot of people had left because of the incidents that happened. So now the American school, the French school, and the British school, we all kind of merged together. Um, And that's how I met my co-founder, Rami. We became very friends early on. Now, we went to university. I went to university in McGill, Montreal, Canada, and I studied electrical engineering. And throughout my entire time there, I wasn't in... I wasn't entirely sure that I wanted to be an engineer and work in engineering. So towards my last year, um, I took um, CFA level one, a financial, like the, the CFA level one. And I did it, I loved it, I passed it, and I said, this is exactly what's not for me. So I said, I, you know what, I'm going to, go tr- going to give this engineering thing a try. Somehow I got a job, the first job I got, the first application I did, was the Schlumberger, which is an oil, oil and gas field services company. And it required me to move halfway across the country to a place I'd never been before. Um, I was young, I was ambitious, and I was kind of driven by the money, if I have to be honest. I was very driven by the money. And I was driven also by the fact that I had an easy childhood, and I felt guilty about it. So having moved to Canada, I noticed that my childhood was very easy. Um, I, we had maids, we had drivers. Um, everything was ready, everything was made, and then I went to Canada. Um, I was also funded by my parents and surrounded by a lot of people who weren't and a lot of people who actually struggled. So I was ready for a challenge and I wanted that challenge. I had something to prove to myself. And that was a key component of why I never left when the times got hard. So I moved halfway across the country to Schlumberger, um, to Alberta, to a small town of about 3,500 people um, called Wainwright, Alberta. Nice town, small town. Uh, very rural. Very rural. Very different than, than the urban setting I was in in downtown Montreal. 3,500 people was the population of the street I used to live in um, in Montreal. I did that for a bit. Then I moved to a town of 10,000 people. So mm-hmm. now I guess it's called the city. Moving up. Yep. Yeah, moving up. And I did that for a while. Then I got transferred to Norway. And I went to Norway for about seven months. That's when I really fell in love with Schlumberger as a company. Because you noticed, because you, you, could, you could tell that they operated differently in different areas, but the, cult, the company culture was the same. I was, I was mesmerized by that, and I was unfortunate not to be able to stay in Norway. So I went back to Canada, and I worked in oil and gas in the field again, so on land. And did that again for a while, for about six months. Now, this is where it really got rough. Um, I got promoted, and the expectations were a lot higher than they were before. Mm. 
So had we, you become a manager at that point? I, or? I hadn't become a manager just yet, but I just become a senior field engineer. I mean, it's, it's the same job as a field engineer. You just do more and you're expected to do more and the room for error becomes a lot slimmer. Um, and then we had just gotten a lot busier. At that time, oil and gas prices were going up, things were going well, and we had got a lot busier and we didn't have enough resources or field workers, field staff, to do all the work. So we were moving all over the country. We were doing 50-hour shifts. At most, it was 52-hour shifts with no sleep. Winter finishes, and winters in Canada, and it's, it's funny because it's compared to Game of Thrones, but when winter is coming, you work super hard in the winters in Canada. And it's 40 below, and you're working outdoors, and you're working long hours, and you're working in the middle of the night, and it's very tiring. So summer came about. Pretty much the opposite of a Dubai summer, huh? Pretty much the opposite of a Dubai summer. I think, I, I honestly, I prefer the heat to the, to the cold. You'd rather sweat than I, shiver. I'd rather sweat than, than, have my f- like, than not be able to feel my toes. I hear you. Yeah. So, so I did that for a while. Then I, got, I went to Norway again. This time, it was better. Um, I enjoyed Norway. I was working offshore. I, had, I, I got to spend time by myself, and then I was requested to come back to Canada to replace my manager. Because he had gotten moved, yeah, he got moved up somewhere else. So I replaced my manager. I enjoyed that management role. Two, three months into it, I had done well, but also I was very lucky because a person who was filling the role of engineer in charge, a management role at Schlumberger, had quit. She just resigned, and then I was naturally the person that would replace her. So I got lucky. I got a lucky break. I'd done the hard work that got me up to the point where I would be considered, and I just got lucky and I got considered for the role of engineer in charge. Um, at that point, I managed 36 people, roughly, 12 engineers, 24 field operators. It, it was, until now, even after Washman, one of the most exciting periods of my life. Even though I worked nonstop, I would you know, go home at 11 p.m., hit the gym until 12.30, sleep until 5, and back at the office. And I enjoyed it because I was learning something new every single day. And I had to build something from, from nothing. Uh, of course, all the technology was available, uh, but the entire management of the project was something I'd never done and that the people before me um, had not prepared me for. They never left a handover. So it was my job to make sure that I was going to do my work well, but also that the person coming in after me the year, the year after was going to do a better job than I did. And I had that mentality, which, we, uh, which my partner Rami also has now at Washman because we want to make our life easier. So you end up doing all the extra work so that the person who comes after you can do a better job than you. Uh, so that, that was the most exciting period of my, of, of my career up until today, even up until Washington, because I was learning everything from scratch. I was learning how to manage people from scratch, people older than me, people younger than me, um, people from all walks of life. So people, people who had just come from Russia, could barely speak English, working, <laughs> working in the Canadian winters, um, young people who, who had only worked in the field for about six months and having to navigate them through the, field, the, the emotional like, journey of, of working 24 hours and, and 40 below. Um, that went very well. And eventually, uh, that assignment was finished. It lasted about five months. I went, I went back to the field. I wanted to go back to the field. I enjoyed the field. It was, um, it's a very different experience. It's very tangible. And you're always moving, you're always traveling, and it's always adventurous. I did that again for a while. And then the time came when oil and gas started tanking. Um, and then I saw, like before my own eyes, I saw the team shrink by 50% due to layoffs. And some people that, I, that were very close to me had been laid off, so they, they were going to leave Alberta. Some of my friends had already moved on to Vancouver because they, they found other jobs. 
And then my two other roommates were moving to London. And what I had worked, like, you know, very long for, which is about four years to get a social life in Alberta during this intense, extreme work. And we used to work two, one, two weeks on, one week off. And I used to work mostly six weeks on, like one week off until the summers. So that intense lifestyle, I no longer had an out from it or like that social outlet. Uh, and I just felt like the season was over. My friend calls me up with an investment opportunity. I didn't like the, the terms of the investment, but I really thought I could do it. And I kind of kept to myself. I didn't want to tell him, hey, I can build this with you because I just felt that's what everyone else would say. So after a few back and forths, he just calls me up one night and he says, hey, man, I would like you to join me in doing this. And I think you would do a great job and you would compliment me very well. Two weeks later, I was in Dubai. I had quit my job. I left my car at the headquarters of Schlumberger in Alberta. They're still, it's still there until now. It's been since May 2015. That car is still parked in that office. I still call to check in on it. The, even the manager is super lazy. doesn't want to move it. Um, so It'll be there two, forever. Yeah, I think so. Until, until October when I go back to get it. Um, so I quit about, I quit within two weeks. I was in Dubai, May 12th, feet on the ground in Dubai, um, in Alcoz, looking at laundries, in Abu Dhabi, getting to know the Flat Six Labs team. And then eventually, yeah, here I am two, two years later. We'll fill in the details as we chat. Sure. So starting with engineering school, joining Schlumberger, kind of rising up through the ranks as you started as a field engineer, then you had an international assignment in Norway, back to uh, Alberta, Canada, then becoming a manager. It sounds like you had a career path ahead of you, which a lot of people would have been envious of. So making that jump away from the security of working for a large multinational to working at a startup where you're employee number one and two, you and your co-founder, how did you think about that and that risk? A lot of people glorify entrepreneurship. They make it seem a lot more than what it really is. And when I quit my job, I didn't, in my mind, I didn't have the idea of I want to be an entrepreneur. Being so deep into the world of oil and gas, I just wanted to be a field engineer that ran like MDT, which is a modular tool that extracts oil 7,000 meters into the ground, makes a lot of bonus. That's the world I was living in. But it came a time where I had to look at the context of the world or the life that I was living in. Again, I was working super hard. I had an irregular life. I had lost touch with what it was to, to live a normal life. And I, and I started missing that. I had lost touch with what it was like to have a social group. And I, and I really enjoyed that social group. And I got into an emotional state where I had to leave. So it wasn't... a a business first choice or like a career first choice. It was a, you know, overall personality, overall context choice. Mm -hmm. There was a lifestyle. There was a lifestyle to it. And there was also, it was just the right moment. I mean, here it was, oil and gas was dropping. My friends were leaving and I was offered a transfer at a down, um, at a, at a stage where oil and gas was going down and it was offered by the VP of Wireline, which is a division of Schlumberger I was working in, VP of North America. And I felt that I felt a pressure not to, that if I turned it down, I would be either one, uh, stay in Canada where I didn't want to be, or I would be laid off. I, I knew it was more likely to be the first one than the second one. But then again, there w- that was in the back of my mind, if I have to be completely honest, despite how glittering of a career I had had so far. But it was also the excitement of saying, okay, I'm going to quit my job, move halfway around the, across the planet with my good friend 
in high school, from high school, that lived with me in a one bedroom, uh, in, a one, in a studio in Montreal, and now I'm gonna live with, with him in a one bedroom in Dubai, building a business that I have no idea about, in a field that I understand nothing about. And I, even in Shlomo I was living for the story. And at that point, I wanted to tell that story. And it sounded like a better story for me to live and tell myself than it was to continue in the oil and gas career. And I miss Schlumberger. I miss the corporate culture. I miss the excitement. I miss the traveling, the vacation time. I mean, yes, you work super hard. You don't have weekends off. But you, I used to get th you know, three months off at, at, a, at a shot. No one, no one gets that. So it had a lot of benefits that I will, know, I will not be able to experience at Washman or probably in, in most careers. But it just felt like the right move. And I, I was going to work with a friend, work for myself. That was exciting. I, I didn't know what that, what that entailed. And then I landed in Dubai and I, fig I just realized, okay, hey, this is not just, I didn't know what an app was. I thought, you know, it was just like a thing, you know, that you use. Even in owning gas, we rarely used phone apps. I didn't even know what Uber was. And I had never used Uber when I came to Dubai. I had never even used Uber once. And now we, they were compared to the Uber of laundry, which is not an accurate, Comparison, but you get the point. We're along the lines of a transportation, you know, company sleek app, algorithms to determine like when we're going to pick up your clothes and deliver them. I had never known any of that. But here, here was the thing. I knew that my operational experience in Schlumberger was going to complement Rami's um, regimented um, creative personality, and I knew I could. He would be the vision, and I would be the person who would be able to execute. Mm -hmm. When you were working at Schlumberger, you were learning so much, and I have to imagine that that's only even accelerated as an entrepreneur. And the things that you've had to get your hands into before we started recording, you were telling us that you you have your hands in everything from the financials to the design work to to everything. So just the breadth of what you've had to do as an entrepreneur has to be very wide. So I work for myself now, right? I work for myself, but really I work for everyone else except for myself. So when we first started, when we first launched Washman, um, I had to learn about technology. I had to consult people about apps. I had to judge people's work when I had no idea what they were doing. We used a dev shop, like a development shop, so an outsourced company to build the first app we ever had. I had no idea what I was looking at. My partner had, no, I had a better idea, but still slim to none compared to what we know now. Uh, and then we had, the, we had the, the blessing, really, to have a friend, who, Ramzi Ismail at Flat Six Labs. We'd, we'd spoken about him earlier who really guided us. And we had the mentorship of Nina Curley, who was the managing director of Flat Six Labs also, to like connect us with people that could bring us to where we wanted to go. So they helped guide us to the disciplines that we had to learn about. So design, Rami was good at it. He got much better. Um, operational excellence, that's something I knew about. I had to get much better at, at that. But what, what it entailed to be operationally excellent in oil and gas seemed seemed simple until you realize that the companies that these multinationals do so much groundwork that it makes the job seem easy. Right. Whereas when you're building the company, operational excellence really means building processes in terms of fuel expenses, which, and then you have to understand how fuel expenses work. Then you have to find software to scale, you know, expensing fuel. Then you have to find um, software, uh, you have to find the technology that allows the drivers to fill up automatically so that, the, you know, to minimize fraud. So you become an expert in 
fueling and expenses, for example. And then I want to find, and then I had to find, I was unable to complete all the work that I, that I needed to do in order for the business to work, but we had no money to hire someone else. So I had to get a resource fund. Then I had to become very good at finding freelancers and building relationships with freelancers over all different types of works. So the receipt that Washman sends you was designed by a freelancer that I coached and I had to work on the design with him. And it was built and programmed by a freelancer, another freelancer that I found and built a relationship with, and he did that. Um, I, I knew nothing in Excel when I first started. Now I'm in love with Excel. So watching Rami the first few days of launching the business, having to build this, you know, this billing uh, Excel sheet that would generate a CSV, I looked at him and I, and I just felt so stupid. And I know it's not a good thing to say, but I felt so, um, so helpless and clueless. And, and, and I'm very competitive. And it's not that I wanted to be better than him, but I really wanted to be good. So I, I, <laughs> you gotta be good so, at writing formulas in Excel. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. and then, but he gave me, so he said one thing that really made me learn Excel very well. And he said, hey man, your thing is you like to research a lot and then do. Mm. In Excel, you have to do, and then when you get blocked, then you have to research. So that one little change in paradigm, which I never used to do. I never used to do and then research. I used to always research and then execute. That little change in paradigm makes me now, what I, I, I feel, very good at Excel and I'm modeling. Um, so I was competitive, and I wanted to like, show him that I was good, too, you know, I was, I, that, that I was no, no longer as bad as I used to be before. Uh, mm-hmm. Good, good. So, so, you know, you get into Excel, you get into design, you get into, like, freelancers expensing, you get into technology, like, UX and UI, because now, so now we have a customer service team, and then, you know, um, and accounting, and, and you're always thinking about, okay, how can I make this as frictionless as possible from a UX perspective for my customer service team, whose job it is to click on the dashboard, like, you know, whatever, eight hours a day. So then you're thinking about UX, mm-hmm. and then you think about customer UX, and then operational UX, and then what's the UX of the driver when he, when he goes to the laundry, and how does he receive a task on his phone? So you're really thinking about, you're trying as, as hard as possible to remove all these blind spots from the 360-degree view that the business needs. Uh, and I still feel like, I, I, I still get anxiety sometimes because I feel like I'm far behind. Mm-hmm. Mm. Something you just mentioned is uh, the decision between make versus buy. So do you train yourself up? Do you, you know, go and find the right resources, learn it yourself, spend the time and, and the, the money sometimes to, to train yourself to do that? Or do you find the freelancer and just buy that service, buy that resource right away? How do you make that decision? I think it's a balance between both. So when we first started, we thought that you could just buy something and then it will be fine. But then what we learned over time that is, is that you need to get very comfortable and, and get the high-level high knowledge of the subject matter, a, a, good, enough, a good, good enough command of the subject matter to be able to judge the work that's being submitted to you. So, for example, we use Zendesk, our, our customer service ticketing system. I don't know much. I didn't know much about it. I tried to buy a solution. It didn't work. So then I went in and I educated myself enough on how to execute myself. I found that I had time to do it. So I did some of it, but when I got blocked, I didn't say, okay, I'm going to continue. I said, I can get better value for my money if I buy this solution and I bought it and I was able to judge whether it was working or not because then I knew what, the, what, what equations he was using and I could read what he was writing. So I had an, a good enough command of the subject to be able to judge his work and to know whether it was 
good work or bad work. What about building a team, finding the right talent? You started just you and your co-founder. Now you said you have a team of 13. Finding the right people in the marketplace to do exactly what it is that you need to grow the business and then coach them, give them everything that they need uh, to continue to grow as well. It's not an easy process, I'm sure. It's, it's very difficult to answer because, you know, we've, we've made mistakes and I, um, I don't feel very good about, about remembering the mistakes that we've made. But if I have to be honest, uh, we, the first two hires we made were, were three hires um, after the CTO. So Rami and I joined, joined forces and then we hired a CTO a couple of months in, in August 2015. The first three hires we did after that were, were not good hires. They were actually very bad hires because we hadn't thought about cultural fit. It was like, hey, you're cool. You want to work with us? Come on in. It, it was that attitude. It's like, okay, you've shown interest in the business. You love the business. Great. We'll have you on board. And, and it was just, we were very superficial on how we assessed, um, how we assessed their fit, whether in terms of cultural fit into the business or, or their or their actual capabilities because we thought that we could teach them anything because we learned everything from scratch but that's not the case with everyone some people have that some people don't so the first three hires we did were did not work out for the company and and you know employee number four five and six are no longer with us at this point um some of the one of them left by uh, of her own will i think she felt that it was no longer a fit and the other two guys were we had to let go and so and so was that, sorry to interject, ahead, was that please. really based on uh, the cultural piece of it or was it based on the technical skills that they were in there, in the scope of their role? I'd say it's a bit of both. Mm -hmm. It has to be. It's, it's always a bit of both. Startups, you know, I was saying, you know, I didn't even know what a startup is. Now I have a very clear concept of what a startup is. And it's, it's a company where you cannot, where, where it's, you know, the antithesis of anything bureaucratic. There's no red lines. There's no, oh, this is not my job. This is not my responsibility. Like, I take out garbage every day. I clean the dishes every day. I'm a co-founder. So, do, so does everyone else in the team. And when you have people that join and are not willing to just do a small thing like, you know, taking a driver's expense because that falls out of the scope of, of the role that they have, then that lead, that's a cultural problem. But then when they, when, because of that mental resistance that they have to learning new things that, that were not in their mind, in, in the field of knowledge that they believe they had to acquire, then that leads to them not learning everything to the full extent that, they, that is required of their role. And they don't do that, and then they become incompetent because the business has grown, but their ability to execute at this level has not caught up with the business. So let me just elaborate a bit. I want, I want to tell you a good example. The last hire we did was the first time we 100% hired based on culture. And, and, and bringing in Nelio on, Antonelio is our marketing director. We were interviewing two people, both very qualified with very different skill sets. Um, but very, culturally very different, or the vibe, the energy was very different. And Antonio had, like, he was a Kareem, he had this, he had this, like, Kareem has a crazy energy. Like, you can tell by watching Chris Eid and, like, Magnus speak and, like, Modesta's energy. You can tell that they have, like, a, like a go-getter go energy. And we felt like we were getting that with Nelio, and ultimately when it came down to it, 
we hired for culture because we felt like we needed that central figure that would just amalgamate, you know, like bring the energy and, and, and bind the team together. And so we hired for culture and that was by, by far the best decision we've made for hiring at that point. That was, that was the moment where vanity left and we said, okay, we don't hire for tech, like for just technical knowledge. You hire for culture first. And then if you believe the technical knowledge can be bridged, then, then the culture supersedes the technical knowledge by far. It, over, it overrides how much, how much they know because then they can learn. So, you know, even though I just said the opposite of that a few seconds ago, it's because I never understood when culture trumps technical knowledge. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it does. It does. In this case, 100% it does. Mm-hmm. And now we have a group of young guys, and, and Nelio hangs out with our operations coordinator, like learning how to hustle from him by going to Dira and like negotiate, negotiating and bargaining. It's, it's just very nice to see that the, the entire team is gelling. And now I feel like we really have a team of a team, not a group of individuals, each doing very well. Now we have a team that, that comes together very nicely. Awesome. That's good. One thing I uh, read in uh, just doing a little bit of research about Washman is that you actually require each of the members of your team to go out to the field with some of the drivers and meet with customers, go to the vendors, understand the process from wing to wing, from picking up the article of clothing from the customer all the way to the drop off. And uh, what has that done for your company? How has that improved some of your processes you know, what, what are some of the benefits that you've seen come out of that? So you're asking me at a perfect time. A few weeks ago, we introduced InstaOrder. It was about five to six weeks ago. Um, InstaOrder is growing super fast. InstaOrder, um, to explain it quickly, is the ability to place an order with one, one tap of your app. Uh, so it's an immediate gratification service. It's super convenient. It's, it's a better price. But what it's, led to, what it's led to is a big shift in our operations. So now our routing algorithm is no longer valid. It's not the same way it used to be. It's no longer relevant. So I just went two days ago. I sat with a driver, went with him to, lo- to the laundry, saw how he organized himself. I saw um, how he moved from location to location. I, I just tried. To, I was there with him when, you know, other deliveries were happening, other collections were happening. I, I got to see his perspective and experience it. Sure, I'm not, I don't feel the same pressure that he does because he's the one like doing everything, but at least I could relate to it and empathize with it by sitting next to him and experiencing it real time. So what? literally one day later, yesterday I, I was in the office at about 10.30, up until 10.30, 11 p.m., and I wrote down the entire routing optimization algorithm and, and now we're going to introduce it. I mean, it's going to take a few weeks to build, but had I not done that, I would not have been able to write the routing optimization algorithm, which I've been procrastinating for three to four weeks. I've been putting it off, and, and then just by being in the field one day, it clicked. It's critical. Even when Rami goes into the field, um, you know, he's a CEO doing fundraising. He still goes to the field. So he still goes to site and he still goes with the drivers, goes to the laundry. Because he's, he's delved into user experience, like really deep in terms of the app, he gets to, he gets to relate to the drivers and their experience, their U, UX mm-hmm. while they're in the laundry. And without him, we, had ne- we would not have been as efficient as we are now because he brings a fresh perspective. And you know, bringing in a programmer or a customer service agent or the marketing director or the accountant mm-hmm. to the field brings an entire di- different dynamic. Even our accountant like, went with the drivers for a few days, three days in a row, 
And had he not done that, then, then, then his work on our dashboard would not be as simple as it is today because he, he gets it. He gets what the drivers are going through. He gets what the customers are receiving and, and ultimately what, how these bills are being made and, and what mistakes could happen. And all that has helped us build a technology that 99.99% of the time allows us to preempt any you know, incorrect charges to customers. You've been in business for about a year and a half, is that right? And you've had double-digit growth every single month since launching? Roughly accurate. It's mainly, mostly double-digit, but, but over the summer, it kind of slows down. Okay, sure. Makes sense as people head out for the summer. It's for a this, very seasonal business. For travels, sure. Because of that, you've actually been able to scale not only through Dubai, but also to Abu Dhabi as well. Is that right? You recently true, launched yeah. in December 2016, I think, into Abu Dhabi. Um, what do you think? Is it a blessing or a curse to scale to new geographies? And even as you've gotten larger in Dubai, had to deal with more customers, more vendors. What has that process been like for you? Okay, so let me, let me answer this question in, in two ways. A theoretical way, and then I'll dig into the you know on the ground reality so when we first launched and, and you know during the first couple of decks that we launched out to get our seed investment so our first investment in july 2015 a few months before we launched you know we had these grand goals of launching in, in singapore launching in in saudi we never really were too excited about saudi just because you know we'd grown up there and then we just didn't think the, there was a market for it but we had these ambitions Fast forward a few months in, you know, we were doing super well, wanted to raise another deck, uh, another, another, another round of funding, and we wanted to go to Singapore, and people looked at us like we were crazy. In that moment, the excuses they gave us were incorrect, and I still believe that. However, I don't think their fear or their judgment was out of place, and I think my co-founder now also agrees, because scaling is possible, but scaling also dilutes, one, your funding. It also dilutes your focus as a business. And even, forget scaling regionally, nationally, or even internationally, your focus is diluted when you take your eye off of the operation of one city into to another city. You need more people. You need, ultimately, you need more founders, really, because you need people that are willing to do everything and, and, and you know, go through the dirt, dirty part of the business. And that's not easy. And finding those people is super hard. And had we done it, it would have been the biggest curse. The way we're going on about scaling now is, is a lot more thought through. Let's put it that way. It's more, it's more thought through. We've thought, we've thought about it. We've experienced it. Um, and we realized that in order to be able to scale both nationally and internationally, we have to be able to prove to ourselves before our investors that we have the metal that it takes to be able to scale nationally and understand what it is to take a business from zero to $50,000, 50 to 100, 100 to 200, and then 200 to half a million. And I think that number of $1 million per month is a very nice number. And it's a big psychological, it's, it's just, it's a big psychological barrier. And so was 100 and so was half a million. And we've broken the 100. I believe we have the half a million in, in reach. It, it's very realistic and over the next couple, a couple of months, maybe six to eight months. I think we can get there. But that million number is, is really important. And I think before we can do that, it would be premature to scale internationally. Maybe regionally would make sense, but internationally it, it would not make sense. 
I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Founder. It's about the story of Ray Kroc with McDonald's as, they, as he uh, expanded that. And one of the main things that he you know, identified as the problems to expanding his and franchising McDonald's was finding those other founders who were just as passionate as he was about running McDonald's cleanly in the proper way. And I, I see that, you know, mirroring the story that you just gave us with Washman, trying to find people who are going to do all the dirty work in another country or another geography to set it up. So how are you going to do that? How, if you expand to a new city, how do you go about the process of training somebody up so that you are confident when they land day one, you know, that, that they're, they're able to do that? I don't have a good answer to that, but I have a bit par answer. So the bit par answer starts with the fact that we have SOPs for every single thing we do. SOP is a standard operating procedure. Everything that we do, whether it's customer service, operations, technology or marketing, there's an SOP behind it. And the idea here is not, not to make, you know, not to tell people exactly what to do, but to give them through a document, the spirit, the idea, the mentality, and the process of the business. Now, that, that, that's the first step. Now, how, how do I go on about finding a person who's willing to be autonomous and to build a business? I don't know. If I knew, maybe I would have done it. I know that when you interview people, when you get a good sense of who they are, you get a sense of their work ethic, you get a sense of their vibe overall. I mean, it, it's, it's really a shot in the dark. I've told you that we've made mistakes hiring um, operations managers and customer service agents, and we've done super well hiring a marketing director and a, an operations manager too. So I don't know. I think it's a shot in the dark from, based on the information that I have on hand now. Mm -hmm. And how about Abu Dhabi? How's it going so far since you've launched? Abu Dhabi is, was super slow in the beginning. Now it's going well. It's, it's growing double digits every month, but it's very easy for a small market to grow double digits. Sure. I think we're doing much better. Uh, I, I see, the, you know, I see the, the, the efforts of our hard work in Dubai in Abu Dhabi. I see we're not making the same mistakes. Our communication with our suppliers is much clearer. Our management of our drivers is much clearer. We're much faster to react to a breakdown. So, so I see that. And overall, it's going well. And of course, Abu Dhabi is a very different market than Dubai. The demographics are very different in terms of how many singles, how many married couples, how many couples with children. The geography is laid out very differently. I think there's only a couple of areas, mainly Reem Island um, and, and, and Yas Island, that are somewhat similar to Dubai. The rest is very different. And, and we are working as we speak on a strategy that would help us grow in Abu Dhabi. And it's a very different strategy than in Dubai. So, so that, that's a lesson, for example. You can't do the same thing, even though it's only one hour away. It's a very different market, and it's very different people making up that market. And so the approach for marketing is very different. How has the relationship between you and your co-founder evolved over time uh, from that one bedroom that you told us about until now where you're running a, a larger team and a, and a full business? So Rami and I had already lived together before in Montreal in, in a studio. Um, for a very short period of time, when I moved to Dubai, we lived in a one-bedroom together for about a year and a half, up until this February, so from May 2015 to February 2017. Um, glamorous building, too. It was, it was always funny telling people where we lived and them assuming <laughs> that we were better off than we were. But So we lived together, and, and, and of course, you have that immersion 
the immersion in the business because you're always talking about the business, but we we're already very good friends anyway. We traveled to Brazil together. We traveled to Japan together. We always used to, used to meet up randomly during the year. So we were very close personally before going, going together into business. So then, then moving in together and living together out of, out of necessity really, but I, I think somewhat also out of the want to always be immersed in the business. Cause otherwise, I, I think I would have tried to move out before. That allowed us to, to build a very deep relationship professionally because then you learn how, to, how this person is thinking. You know, he comes out of the shower. He does a lot of this thinking in the shower. So he comes out of the shower in his bathrobe just spewing out ideas. Uh, and that becomes your personal hanging out time. You're talking about the business. You're talking about the growth of the business. Um, but at the same time, since we're living together and we're working together in the office all the time, then that naturally creates a, a friction. Some of it is because of our very complementary but different personalities. Some of it is because, just like with anybody else, whether it's family or a random person, if you're around that person all the time, you naturally, you naturally just start resisting them, however slightly. And given that we were always together, that led to some friction. But you know what? It never lasted more than five to ten minutes. Um, it's natural for us to, to get into heated arguments. It's natural for us to get into debates. We think very differently. We act very differently. But honestly, um, and it, take it however you will, but we were just talking a few weeks ago, and we said, hey, you know what? And it's a bit of an emotional founder moment, but hey, he's like, I can't make decisions without you very well. And, and that's a very nice thing to feel. And... And it's not that I can't make a decision. Not, we can both make decisions without each other, but it's like I really want to have his opinion before I make it because I value his opinion. And, of course, as we were building the business, sometimes you want that autonomy, but sometimes you want that feedback. And I think the evolution of the business also led to an evolution of our work relationship. We knew very, each other very well personally, but we needed to get to know each other also professionally. Um, and I need to be able to let him be himself and do business his way and, and he needs to know who I am and ultimately not cross my lines and I can't cross his lines, which rarely happened anyway. But still, that's a work in progress. It'll always be a work in progress. But I, uh, I feel finally, you know, after, after two years of working together, we're in harmony now and, it's, and you feel it and you can feel it, you know, with the team, when the team is around us. Uh, you feel it when, when we're talking to each other, when we're thinking about a new idea. Insta Order was an idea that we got when we were in Georgia. We were in, we were in Georgia hiking for a couple of days. We came back. We were just talking about how lazy we were and I didn't want to do my washman. And then, you know, I said, hey, it would be nice to have a 3D touch one-tap order. And then all of a sudden this guy came up with, an, you know, he came up with Insta Order and it's an algorithm that, you know, optimizes pickups and drop-offs. And, you know, he's not the operations guy, but he's quite operationally savvy. So in terms of our roles, our roles do mix and match. Um, I do have to get involved in, in what he's doing sometimes, and he has to get involved in what I'm doing. I'm one of those guys, I'm very picky about visuals. I can't make anything really look nice, but I'm very picky about what looks nice. Um, I, I care a lot about what's written and how the brand is presented. Uh, so I give feedback on the blog posts. I, you know, I write blog posts that we publish also. And... So, so, and that's his area, but I kind of go in and he, and he values what I do and, and I value how, how he, he does what he does also. Mm -hmm. It seems like, you know, living in the same space and just working together all the time, you have this always on mentality. So switching to just yourself, how do you manage that and your personal style? How do you uh, go through that process of figuring out how you're going to allocate your time, your energy 
to be the best you can possibly be for Washman and for that lifestyle you were talking about earlier at the beginning. Yeah. How, do you, how do you transition that and how do you manage that time? I think I can give you a good answer because I did a very poor job at it from, from February until May. I think I did a very poor job at you know, having that work-life balance is ultimately what you're talking about. Having that ability to handle and take care of my personal needs when the needs of the business are always on and when I'm consistently immersed in them. And so when I joined Washman, I used to weigh 93 kgs. I used to be, the, the, you know, at the fittest time of my period of my life. And now I'm weighing 102 and my most I was 110. So that's a, that's a big swing, 38 pounds roughly. So, and I didn't take care of myself. And, and the issue is not, is there time to do it? The issue is, is there mental space to do it? Because when you're always on, what happens is that your brain is not, it, it, it gets stuck in a loop of the things that you're thinking about. And when you procrastinate or when you, don't, when you feel like you don't have the certainty that, is, that, is usually, that you usually require to make a decision or execute on a plan, then what happens is you get stuck in this loop of you're looking for more information. It's a form of paralysis that I used to do a very good job at in Schlumberger towards the end because I learned how to do that. I learned how to get out of the paralysis and into action regardless of where I used to live. I used to, you know, traveling all the time made it very difficult. And despite that, I was still in, in top form. And so I didn't know how to do that as a founder. And now I'm, I, I've rediscovered that, that form and I've rediscovered the ability to separate mentally. And, and how do you do that? It's as simple as, okay, when I say it out loud, it's really not that simple, but it's about waking up in the morning and not dreading going to the office. And when I used to feel that a dread of going to the office at nine, and I would, you know, I would cringe just thinking about that, and it was my own company, and I worked super hard to build it. And I had to think to myself, what is wrong with the way I'm living right now? And it was all business, no play. Weekends, at home, disconnecting. So I had to rediscover myself, right? I had to, I had to ask myself, what do I value? And I value social time with friends. I value exercise. I value reading. I love reading. And I value just constantly expanding, you know, the fields of the fields and the domains that I have knowledge in. I don't need to be an expert in it, but I want to consistently discover these things. So just about having, rediscovering that curiosity for things other than business. And of course, you've heard this many times before, the second I did that, my work improved, my, life, my personal life improved, um, my team management improved, and I became somewhat, I stopped snapping at people. I was never a person that snapped, and yet I found myself snapping at people. And, and that, that just wasn't healthy, and that was a wake-up call. And, you know, the coup, de, the coup de grace, like they say in French, was when I was in Florence a few weeks ago for Rami's wedding. I, was, uh, I just remembered what it was like to be around people that you love and people that you enjoy uh, and people that you can really connect with. And I said, hey, I have all of that in Dubai. And I've never, I, I haven't allowed myself to enjoy the company of those that I love and those that I care about in Dubai, yet they're there. So that moment when I snapped into, hey, I can, I can actually keep these relationships going on and, and rejuvenating, I guess, I guess it's a, I don't like that word, it's a big word for what I'm trying to say, but rejuvenating myself week in, week out, over the weekend, that can actually improve my work, that can improve my personal life, that can improve um, my relationship with my colleagues and my teammates and my reports and, my, and the drivers and, and my partner and my... And my, and my 
everyone else around me, my family, if I, if I just become a bit lighter and less serious, which, which you tend to become when you're a founder, you can become very serious, then I can enjoy all areas of my life. So that was, the, that was it. I just had to rediscover, the th I had to rediscover and remind myself consistently of the things that I care about. And it's just a matter of reminding yourself. Some people say you need to have affirmations or goals. I don't necessarily have goals. I just, I just want to feel good. And I've realized that I'm not feeling as good as I used to at one point. And then I just said, and I went after doing the things and having discipline about the things that I enjoy. And it's crazy to say I have discipline around my hobbies and what I enjoy, but, but that's what I had to do. That's what I had to learn. Jad, thank you so much for being uh, an incredible guest on our uh, podcast, one of the early launch guests. We really appreciate you being here with us and all the wisdom that you've shared with us about launching a business from the ground up, starting from nothing. Um, are there any final words of wisdom that you want to share with our listeners that they can take away and, and uh, implement and go forward with? So I'll do a, f f you know, a quick fire set of like nuggets of wisdom. Be grateful for what you have. When you feel grateful for what you have, life tends to be a bit sweeter. Don't get stuck in the ruts. They're only part of the process. You'll, you'll look back at them um, and, and come to appreciate them. Um, if you're going to have a co-founder, realize that it's a long-term relationship, that it's also about, just like any relationship, you have to know when to put yourself ahead and when to put them ahead. Um, seek to understand and then to be understood. If you do it the other way around, you'll have a lot of problems. I'm not the one who said that. That's Stephen R. Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And then I'd say finally, if you, if you are looking to start your own business, but, but you feel like you're afraid of what it takes, you could be right, you could be wrong. What I did is very unique to me, and the stories that you hear about everybody else doing it are very unique to them. I quit, and I had no backup option. But that's not the only way to do it. That was the way that I did it based on my circumstances. You have your own circumstances. Really learn to trust yourself and learn to remove all the things in your way or in your mind that don't allow you to trust your judgment. Because if you were to quit one day and start your own business, then the most important thing you have is your ability to trust your own judgment about your own decisions, but also about other people's decisions. And I mean, thank you for having me. I'm very grateful uh, that you had me on your show, that I, that I actually got to share my experience. I like sharing it. Um, and I just like, like debunking a lot of the myths that people have around entrepreneurship and what it's about. But I also like sharing my experience, um, which I feel has, has, been, has been a very positive one. Uh, and, I, and I'm grateful for that. So thank you for having me. Well, thanks much, again. Man. Are there uh, any websites or any social media that you want to you know our yes. listeners to go to so even though we're a tech company we don't we're not we don't have a very good presence on social media i certainly don't but my my instagram handle and my twitter handle is superficial jad and washman you can find out about washman at www.washman.com perfect thanks jad we appreciate it thank you very much for having me You can check out this episode's show notes on our website at streamsofprogress.com slash Washman. We'd love to connect with you, so follow us on Facebook and Instagram or reach out via our website. If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. 
We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress. Thank you.